At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 523rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who maximizes her farm production with a little help from her four-legged friends. We're talking with returning guest, Danelle Wolford, about making more with goats. Danelle is an urban farmer and goat enthusiast located in Phoenix, Arizona. She runs a popular blog and YouTube channel called Weed and Reap and boasts over 100 million views. That's outrageously cool. Congratulations. She started to take an interest in a healthier lifestyle after being diagnosed with two debilitating chronic diseases. On a mission to create a farm of her own, she and her husband purchased an acre of land in the city and transformed it into their very own urban farm. Together with their two children, they milk goats, gather eggs from their chickens, tend to a large garden, and raise fish in Arizona's first naturally filtered swimming pool. They share their hilarious farm adventures on their YouTube channel with over 400,000 subscribers and are passionate about inspiring others to grow food and raise animals, no matter the size of their yard. Danelle, we got to meet you in podcast episode 84, way back in May of 2016. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock? Yes, I am. Excellent. So can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you and Weedem and Reap since then? Yeah. I mean, we've just been trying to maximize what we've been doing here. We just have this one acre. And so we're always trying to figure out what can we put in this little spot and what can we do here to try to make everything more productive. Cool. And your one acre, does it happen to be flood irrigated? It, it is. Yes. So tell me about that a little bit. People are really unfamiliar with that. I've, I've noticed as we've been sharing videos online, they're so fascinated by it. But basically, you know, it's a system that was designed by the uh, Hohokam Indians, you know, years ago, years, years, years ago. And we still use it today. And so basically, we get water from the local lakes here that comes down the canals to different yards that you people that have larger amounts of land. Actually, that's not true. Some some of them are still smaller little lots. But basically, if you've got a land that gets irrigated, then you're lucky. (laughs) Everybody's always looking for that. The water's a lot cheaper and it usually makes your trees and plants grow so much better. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's It's actually, I have flood irrigation too here at the urban farm and it's a water right that comes with the property going back over a hundred years. So I tell anybody that wants to buy a farm or a yard here in Phoenix, find flood irrigation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a big it's a big deal here, and we're we're always grateful for it, even if we have to get up in the middle of the night to do it. <laughs> right. So 
since we talked last, almost four years ago, your YouTube channel called Weedem and Reap has exploded. Tell me about that and how that makes you feel. It's so exciting. It's so fun to see people love what you're doing. You know, when you make the decision to put your life out there, it can be really scary. <laughs> and you're right. like, okay, get ready for the criticism. But, you know, actually, it's been really enjoyable. And I was actually pretty afraid of YouTube because I thought, okay, gosh, this is where the, like the monsters live. <laughs> this is where the crazy people live. But no, it's been amazing. People have been so fun to connect with. And we were just always amazed at how people find us and where they live. And it's just all over the world. We get so many emails and comments about that. And the thing I'm most surprised about is that the majority of people that follow us do not have any kind of farm or any kind of animals. Yeah. And I found that because it's fascinating to them, they've never seen seen people grow food and seen like a real in-depth look at that. And so we have a whole big variety of different types of people and it's just made it really fun. Oh, nice. I, I watched one of your recent videos and you have some piglets coming. We do. Yeah, my my husband wanted to get into raising this special breed of pig. They're related to potbelly pigs, so they're they're kind of a pet breed, but people use them also for meat. They'll raise them for meat or they're the reason why people like them so much is that they are gentler pigs. They're not like your typical, you know, pig that is going to root in the ground and tear up all of your make a big mud pit. You know, they're not going to do that. And they're not going to try to like attack your chickens or, or something like that. They're very calm. They are, they like to eat pasture mostly. So they'll be out grazing in the pasture with the goats. Wow. So that's, it's really cool. So they actually help mow our grass. The problem you have with goats is goats are browsers. So they tend to be a little more picky with their food and they don't keep the grass mowed down well. So the pigs kind of fill in that space for us so we don't have to mow our pasture (laughs) at all. But also it's a great business venture for a farm because these pigs are very, there's a high demand for them because they are, they can be raised for meat. They can also be pets. So you can have them on. They're great for small farms, stuff like that. So yes, this is our first foray into it. And she's due with quite a lot of little piglets. So we're a little bit nervous, but hey, you know, we're up for any new adventure. Yeah, I know the video, she was the one, the woman that was doing the ultrasound on them started it counting and she got to three, four, and then she got to five, (laughs) six, and then she got, did she get any farther than seven? Yeah, I think she got, no, I think she got to seven. And then when I turned off the camera, she said, there's so many, I can't even count. So I I was like, (laughs) oh gosh, (laughs) here we go. Nice. Nice. So we're here today to talk about goats. Why goats? Goats are so awesome because they're easy to have on a small amount of land. They're so good at clearing brush and keeping weeds down. And then they're really efficient eaters and milkers. So they, they produce a lot of milk for how much they eat. They're also great for kids to work with. And then overall, they're less expensive to buy and to feed than, let's say, like a cow or something. But I think the top reason why I like them is because the milk is easier to digest for most folks. It has a different formulation of fat globules. So it it is digested differently in the body. And so people, you know, you'll often hear people that will say, yeah, when I was a newborn and I, you know, I couldn't drink any formula. So my mom fed me, you know, goat's milk, or you'll, you'll hear a lot of people that will be the default milk that people will drink if they, you know, if they don't go to completely 
I guess, plant-based milks. Yeah, so it's it's cool. And then obviously they have great, great personalities. <laughs> you just, you can't find that in any other animal, so. Right, wow. And what are the misconceptions that there might be around goats? Well, I guess I kind of already mentioned the first one. People often think that they're going to mow their lawns. But goats are really picky. They're they're always looking for the most nutritionally dense plants. Hmm. So they're going to, they have a great sense of when they taste something, they know whether or not that is going to provide them a higher amount of nutrients. So they will go after a lot of the bushes that have a deeper root system because that's going to uptake different nutrients. And so they're, they're really into browsing more. So you're going to be kind of disappointed that they will nibble at grass, but they just won't mow it down like a sheep would. The other thing is that people people say, you know, they eat everything. I think I even remember growing up like watching Sesame Street or something and, and seeing that, you know, about a goat eating a can or something, you know, that image right. of the goat yep. um, or eating the clothesline or something. But, you know, goats, goats are, they nibble on everything because they want to test everything, but they usually won't sit and eat just anything unless they're severely malnourished then they're going to be hungry for anything. So so that's good. So we can have them. It's not like uh, you have to protect, you know, everything in your yard from the goats chewing on it. They're really pretty good about just sticking to their, to their food. It's not like having chickens where they'll take out everything. Yeah, yeah. It's not as much like that. Yeah, exactly. Chickens are actually probably more destructive than goats, honestly. The next thing I would say is that People think that they stink, but they actually, only the males, the intact males that are used for breeding stink. The females just like a dog, you know, just like normal, normal little animal. So that's, if a lot of people like, for, for example, we only keep the females here on our property. And then about once a year, we will rent a male from a local farm here that has male and we'll bring him over. And so he can breed our does. And then, then we don't have them anymore. So it helps, uh, helps it not stink here year round. So that's nice. Big time. And I would say, I would say like the last thing is probably that people think the milk tastes bad because uh, the only taste or flavor they know of goat is goat cheese. The goat cheese is actually made with a special culture to taste like that. So that's not what goat milk tastes like. Goat milk tastes almost identical to cow's milk. In fact, we did a fun little test with my family where we bought cow's milk. We had we had sheep's milk as well and goat's milk, and we, we all couldn't tell the difference between any of them. So it just tastes like milk. It has a tendency to go sour faster, so you have to make sure and keep it in a really cold fridge. So that's that's just one little maintenance thing you have to do with goat's milk. But besides that, you know, they're good. Wow. And how many goats do you have that you milk? So right now we have four we're milking and we're breeding we're breeding five goats right now for the next season. And then we have some up and coming ones as well. So we'll always usually have some animal in milk for us. And what do you do with all that milk? Because you can't be drinking four goats worth of milk a day, do you? Well, you know, so we actually keep the littlest size of goats. They're called Nigerian dwarfs. Mm -hmm. And they're known for the best taste of goat's milk. So they have just a phenomenal flavor and um, they're just really desirable. But they don't produce a lot of milk. So we don't get that much every day. You'd be surprised. We go out there and we milk them and we probably only get, you know, a half gallon a day, which doesn't seem like a lot. But then you add that up and that's, you know, three gallons a week or something right. like that. 
And do you, do you share it with others or are you consuming all of it? We're usually, yeah, we usually consume it ourselves. We'll share it with some family that comes over, but we'll mm-hmm. also use it in other things. You know, we'll use it in baking a lot or anytime when you need milk or cream or something like that, we're using it instead. Nice. We'll also make yogurt and I will make some goat cheese. I'll use a little culture and make some goat cheese. But yeah, that's about it. And how do you get into getting goats? It's like, what's your first step? If I, you know, if yeah. somebody out there, somebody out there is listening, and it's like, oh yes, I want a goat or two. What's like, what's the guidelines here? Well, that's actually how I started my blog because I was interested in getting a goat um, because I wanted my son was not allergic to cow's milk, but his asthma worsened with it. So I thought, let's get a goat, you know. And and there was like a shocking lack of information online about raising goats at the time. And so I I found a few books. And I read all I could. And then that's where I, that's how I started my blog. I started writing, okay, I'm going to give this information to people. So I have little beginner goat guides for people. But basically, you just really need to read up on the care and what to expect. And then your next job is to find a good breeder. And there's so many here in the Valley. It's, I know so many good breeders here and you just can't go wrong with people. So there's, there's so many great farmers here. Yeah, so as long as you can make sure that the farm's clean and that they're knowledgeable and that they have good lines, you know, you can expect to pay a little bit more. I would say for a, a good quality milking goat, you'll probably pay like three to 400 for a really good milking doe. She'll probably be a doling or one that hasn't been bred yet. And then you'll raise her up and breed her at about, you know, one and a half years old. And so usually you have to wait till about two years of age before you'll have milk. And you have to breed them in order to get milk. Yeah, you do have to breed them. They're just like humans, so, you know, they're not going to produce any kind of milk until they've had babies. Got it. And what kind of city codes do you have to deal with on, you know, getting into keeping Yeah, that can be tricky. I mean, we're lucky in Arizona, there's agricultural zoned areas, you know, I'm sure where you live, because I think, don't you have chickens, right? We do so, have chickens, yep. So you're allowed to have chickens. I'm not sure what you what your neighbors would do if you got to go. But normally, you can pretty much get away with it, especially if you buy one of these smaller goats, one of these Nigerian dwarfs. I've had friends who have successfully been able to keep a mini goat as a pet because their weight is like, you know, the same weight as a big dog, like 60 to 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had friends who live in the city and they have two little pet goats that are little Nigerians and they breed them and milk them, you know, <laughs> and they do the whole thing out of their backyard. So that's another big benefit. You you know, I'm sure some people are listening and maybe they're like, there's no way my neighbors would let me do that. And in some areas that's true, but you might be able to get around it. You might. So you can always look into that. Yeah. But of course you, you always will have to have two goats because one goat by itself is a loud goat because <laughs> uh, they, they're, they're herd animals and they, they really need a buddy and I, a dog won't do it. A chicken won't do it. They all feel really lonely. And I actually made that mistake. The breeder told me I needed to get two, but I just wanted to get one to try it out. And she was the loudest thing. I couldn't believe mm-hmm. like all night long, just screaming. And then once I got a second one, it was, she was just super quiet, not a peep from either one of them. Uh-huh. So so that, yeah, that's a funny. that's a major caveat then when getting goats. Listen to the breeder when they say get two. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. And so there's a cycle, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but there's a cycle that goats go through. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like you asked, you know, do they have to be bred? That's a really common question. It's hard for people like, okay, like how does this whole thing work? But 
So let's say you buy a baby goat. You have to wait till they're about a year and a half to be able to breed them. And then they're pregnant for about five months. So they're not going to be able to produce milk for you until they're about two years of age. But then once they start producing milk, they'll immediately start right after they have their babies. And you'll usually for a couple of weeks, you'll let the babies have full access. So the babies get their full nutrition. The babies develop super fast. So at about two weeks, they're ready to start nibbling on hay and a little bit of grain, and they will slowly start being weaned from their mom. And so at that point, you will split, you'll do kind of like what they call a milk share with the babies. So you'll have the babies eat half milk and you'll take half the milk. You'll kind of do a little share with them. But once they deliver their babies, we call it in the goat world, we call it a freshening. So that's when they first, that's when they're they have the highest amount of milk. And then as the year progresses, their milk will slowly decline in production, no matter how much you milk them. That's just kind of how, how their bodies work. And then at which point you'll decide when you want to breed them again. Now with us, we like to keep the babies with the mamas as long as possible, usually about to, well, to where the moms start getting really irritated with their babies. <laughs> there's, about, there's about the eight to 10 week mark when the mom's start kind of kicking at their babies and they don't want them to nurse anymore. And at that point, we start to kind of fully help them get weaned. It gives the mom a break. And so what we'll do is we'll put the babies in like a separate little area of the pasture than the moms and the moms. Whereas in the very beginning, if we had done that, the moms would cry for their babies. When they're about eight to 10 weeks old, the moms enjoy it. <laughs> so they're like off. They're happy for the break. And then so we slowly wean the babies. And then we decide at that point whether we're going to sell them or keep them on the farm. And usually we like to give the moms an opportunity to have one of their own babies stay with them because they, they love that bonding. And it's just a really cool experience. They It's so funny. They recognize and they know their baby. And it's kind of like a lifelong friend for them. <laughs> Goats are uh, funny because they develop friendships and they they also hate each other too. So there's a couple of enemies that they make. And so it's always good to make sure that each goat you have has a buddy that they really get along with. That makes sense. So yeah, we just try to try to do things as ethically as possible and really make sure that they're kind of the happiest goats that they could be. Nice. I know that you've kind of plugged all of the animals on your farm into a circular cycle to maximize your farm production. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What we do is we try to incorporate or get as many uses out of the animals as possible. A big question people always ask us is, what do you do with all that poop? Or what do you do with all that manure? And what I love about goats is their manure is different and easier to take care of. It's a lot like, I would guess, like rabbit manure, how rabbits have like little, little pellets. You know, and that's exactly how goat poop is. It's just little, little balls. So it's really easy to rake up, really easy to compost. It's a little bit of a drier poop. So you're not going to step in it and have it all over your foot. It's just kind of these little dry balls. So, so yeah, they're really easy to compost for the garden. So we're always breaking it down and then adding it to the garden, which is great. But also they, it's great for permaculture practices. So a lot of people like to practice pasture rotation with goats and they'll sometimes, you know, they'll plant their pasture here in the spring or in the winter here, and then they will go ahead and, you know, make different 
fences so that they can move them in the different pasture rotations. Yeah, but I mean, as far as maximizing production, you're going to get so much production out of them because you're going to have all this milk and, you know, there's endless uses for the milk, like soap and cheeses and yogurts and then obviously drinking it. And then also they'll keep your weeds down. They'll keep different pasture areas down and then you can use the manure. So it's very awesome. Nice. And what other, so we've talked about piglets and we talked about chickens. What Do you keep any other animals? So we've kept sheep in the past. But we've noticed it's been really hard to keep sheep and goats together. They have different mineral requirements. And copper is really toxic to sheep. They only need a little bit, while goats need more copper. So when you're trying to, you know, give minerals to your animals and feed them, it's, it just gets a little bit tricky. And so we we just have basically, yeah, we've stuck with the goats. And then we've stuck with the different variety of chickens. We have a couple turkeys as well. And then we have, yeah, then we have the pigs. Nice. And and are your turkeys pets or are they for food? They are pets. So that's that's funny. <laughs> we actually got this female turkey. It was gifted to us from a friend. And I guess we could have, you know, butchered her and eaten her. But we actually, she's such a staple on our farm. You know, there's so many people that say, oh, turkeys are stupid and turkeys won't hatch their own babies. They won't sit on the nest. It's it's supposedly really rare to find a turkey, a, her, a heritage breed, that will actually sit on the nest for the full, you know, 28 days and then raise the chicks and not abandon them. And I, she, she was a champ. She did it for us like three times. She, she did. Yeah. So she's too great of a breed and has too great of genetics for us to ever think of butchering her. So she's just kind of here hanging out. And we, we actually, funny story, just put about six months ago, we put little peacock eggs under her just to see if she would hatch those. And she did. (laughs) Now we're like, yeah, she'll hatch anything. She has these huge motherly instincts, which is so weird. She's the first turkey we've ever had. And yet everybody online just they can't ever get their turkeys. They got to incubate them. And mm-hmm. so it's just so funny that she would do that. So now, so we're, we'll keep her. She's a keeper. <laughs> nice. And so back to the goats just for a moment. Do you have a good book for people to get? What do you recommend? There are a lot of good books on raising goats. I think probably my favorite one is there's two. There's one that's called The Backyard Goat by Sue Weaver, or there's Story's Guide to Raising Dairy Goats by Jerry Bellinger. The Story's Guide one is a bit of a shocker because he's talking from like a heavy goat farm production standpoint. And there's some shocking practices in there that are very interesting. (laughs) I don't even know if I should explain that. But yeah, it's so that's a little bit harsh. I would say the backyard goat is great for somebody that is kind of like me, who maybe Mm -hmm. has an acre or even less and is wanting to just have some backyard goats. Great. So the Story Guide if you want to do a lot of goats, if you want to go into goat production. Yeah, that's where if you you're into production, yeah, that would be the best book for sure. In your bio, you mentioned a natural backyard pool, the first yes. in Arizona. Tell me how that came about and then tell me about it. Well, it's called, we kind of call it our swimming pond. We sometimes refer to it as a pool, but it's mostly a pond that we swim in. I um, have been, you know, living in Arizona, Every a lot of people have pools around here and I've always wanted one because we continue to work outside on the farm no matter what the temperature is. And the idea of just jumping in a pool sounded so great to all of us. We're like, oh, we just need to do that. Jump in a pool and then we can work outside. But I just could not pay somebody to come put in a standard like concrete chlorine filled Mm -hmm. pool. It just, 
I couldn't make that jump. We had saved up enough money to build one, but I just couldn't do it. And I had seen these kind of European style, you know, homemade swimming ponds or pools where they utilize plants and special bacteria to clean, kind of help filter the, the pool. Yeah. 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 To make it swimmable, not only swimmable, but a lot of people even say it's drinkable. But my biggest question was, could it be done in Arizona? I mean, we have a completely different climate here. And so I started to do a ton of research and I contacted, there are a couple pond builders here and I went around to ponds that they had built. Now, most of these are like small koi ponds, right? Yep. Or they would be like, like maybe a little fountain entry pond at a, at a commercial building or something. There was a couple at different community colleges. They like, I think at Red Mountain Community College, there's a pretty cool pond and waterfall system. We looked, we checked out all of them and if it had shade, if it, you know, and we asked around so much and we decided that it it definitely could be done here. Um, in fact, you know, there are like man-made ponds here. You know, we've got we've got different they call them urban urban lakes or urban ponds mm-hmm. if you look up at the fish Arizona fishing game department. We went and looked at those and, you know, asked about what they're doing to maintain and take care of those. And yeah, so we just decided to go for it. And it was pretty scary to build something so huge and not really know how it was going to turn out. But yeah, it ended up being amazing. And I'm so glad we did it because not only have we been able to you know, raise fish in it, but we can also raise edible plants in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just beautiful. We can swim in it. And yeah, I just love it. I love this little, little addition. Big nice. addition. <laughs> and and is this something you built yourself or did you have it built? No, we ended up going, we almost built it ourselves, but we ended up wanting to use a little bit more filtration and pump system, a little bit better than what we thought we could do ourselves, just because of, we were a little too worried that we needed a little bit more oomph, I guess, living here in Arizona, mm-hmm. instead of building like a homemade one with kind of this homemade filtration kind of system. So we ended up going with a local contractor here and told him our vision and explained to him everything we wanted to do. And, and he was able to do it for us, even though, you know, he mostly does koi ponds and little ponds. We were, he jumped on the idea. So it was wow. good. My first business yeah. actually in 1975 here in Phoenix was building fish ponds. And really? Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, and while huh. I, while I never built a swim pond, I used to build aquaculture ponds. I okay. converted people's old swimming pools into yes. uh, food production ponds for them here okay. the, from about cool. 1975 to about 1984. Uh, wow. So, yeah, it was something I honestly in retrospect uh, in 1984 I got out of my fish pond business and I got into technology. And while I learned a lot in technology, I kind of missed the fact that I was building fish ponds back before they were cool. Mm. You know, it would have been a fun business to be in these days. That's great. Yeah, it is a good business to be in. People are, especially in Arizona, we want we want these beautiful backyards with, we want to see water features. We don't see a lot of water around here. So right. but yeah, I wanted kind of the best of both worlds. I want to, wanted us to be able to swim in it. I wanted to raise fish in it. And I wanted to be able to, you know, play around with some edible plants as well. Yeah. And are you actually raising fish to eat? Yeah. So we've done it. <laughs> probably people are, that have watched our channel are probably laughing as they hear me talk about this because we've had, like any new venture, a lot of failures with it. So we first tried to raise tilapia and it was a special pure strain of tilapia that not like a hybrid find, one you'd find in the grocery store, but like a pure pure breed of it. They did. They were supposed to do well down to 45 degrees, but when the pond got 55, they all just oh. died. It was crazy. So we, d- we decided not to go that route. We decided to take the longer approach and raise catfish. Oh, nice. Um, so we're, 
yeah, so we're going to try that. They take a little longer to grow, but yep. yeah, they're just kind of these like little bottom feeders that eat bits of algae and we feed them a little bit of this plant or this fish food. And uh, yeah, so we'll see. They We haven't been able to harvest any of them yet, but they're still in there and they're still growing and they can handle the lower temps that we get at, which is pretty much 45, I think is the lowest that, that yeah. pond gets. Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a vivid memory from your childhood associated with food. I do have a memory of my mom always making homemade bread and that was the big thing. Like, you know, we would come home from school and she'd have this whole wheat, freshly ground, you know, homemade bread. So that that's probably my most vivid memory. And do you make bread now? Yeah, I've definitely made bread. I don't make it like consistently where that's that's our main source, but I definitely can do it and I've done it quite a few times. I recently got the a wild hair to to make some sourdough starter and yeah. make sourdough bread. Have you ever done that? Yes, I've done that a lot. So uh, yeah, I've used, I had a starter going for quite a long time. I ended up freezing it for a while after I got tired of feeding it all the time. But yeah, it's such an amazing process, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and so what I haven't quite figured out yet, I just signed up for a, you know, a four video class and I threw video too, and, but she hasn't talked about yet how to get the starter. Where do I get a starter at? Okay, so you're probably gonna she's probably gonna have you make it yourself. Yeah, um, I okay. mean, you can buy so you can buy some starters online where it'll kind of help jumpstart the process a little bit, or you can actually ask in different natural living, you know, Facebook groups or a, a friend. But you can absolutely make it from scratch, you know, because there's natural yeast spores that live in the air, mm-hmm. and you can you can basically make your own sourdough starter right in your kitchen. I've seen some people make it in the spring outside because they feel like the yeast spores that exist in the air are a little bit stronger. But I've also seen people make it right in their house. And I actually got my starter from a friend in Washington who had been making bread for like 10 years. So I knew that she had like a really strong starter. She just gave me the tiniest bit, maybe like a teaspoon in this little plastic baggie shipped in the mail. And I used that and it made this really great bubbly starter. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah. So cool. Yeah, I'm going to jump in and figure that out because I I don't know, for whatever reason, the past couple of months I've been craving sourdough bread, but I really wanted to figure out how to make it myself. Yeah, yeah. You'll like it. You'll catch on to it. It's it's a little weird at first, the concept of it, but once you start making it, it's really fun. Nice. And what new piece of advice do you have for our listeners today? I would say don't be afraid to fail because... Whether you're trying, whatever you're trying to do, whether it's gardening or animals or even a pond or something, just uh, just get started and you're going to learn as you go. I think the best tip along the way, though, is to make sure and observe and keep notes. So you just make sure to remember to not repeat mistakes because <laughs> that can <laughs> right? happen. You'll forget season after season. Oh, yeah, that's right. I wasn't supposed to do that. With So if you keep notes and keep observing, you'll learn, you'll get better. Yay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Danelle. How can our listeners find you? We mostly hang out on YouTube now. We do videos, a couple videos a week and show our lives and what we do here to take care of our animals. And there's always something new and crazy and different happening. So that we have plenty of content, (laughs) plenty of things that's going on here. So you can follow us on YouTube. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. And yeah, just, just join us and laugh along with us. Nice. And that's at Weedem at Reap? Yes. Cool. And your website is weedemandreap.com maybe? Yes. 
Exactly. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Danelle. That's D-A-N-E-L-L-E. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.